several years ago, and you may have, you may remember this, a couple of years ago, quite a stir was raised in the uh, United Church as, of Canada as the United Church attempted to remove a pastor by the name of Ann Vosper. Uh, Ann Vosper had uh, openly and admittedly claimed to be an atheist, not believing in God, not believing that Jesus was in fact deity, is in fact uh, son of God. And um, as pastor of the United Church in West Hill, Toronto, had uh, openly been leading her congregation to those heretical beliefs. The question, the question I think arises for all of us, um, and, and by the way, there was an article, of course, written at that time in the Toronto Star by, which is no uh, bastion of conservatism, by Rosie DeMano, November 11th, 2018, where she writes, by swallowing its opposition to the minister who doesn't believe in God, the United Church shows just how irrelevant it is. You know, I, I think for, for all of us who, if we remember, or if it's just hearing it now and are somewhat shocked, how did this ever even happen? How is it possible that a, an atheist pastor, uh, an atheist could be a pastor, let alone even a member of a church? How could that ever happen? Well, the, the explanation is thousand, uh, uh, several thousand years or millennia of uh, inattention and malpractice of the scriptures, particularly uh, directed at the only two real ceremonies or rituals that were given to the church, um, the Lord's table and baptism, two, only two, and we can't get those right for, for thousands of years. So what we're going to find out today as we, as we journey together on this matter of who is the church, 400 years ago, our denominational ancestors, our denominational leaders, like King Josiah, thousands and thousands of years before that, set out to make things right in terms of biblical reform of the global church that had lost its way. The United Church of Canada, by the way, once had joined that very movement of reforming the things that had drifted away from the truth only to allow the same errors to come back and occur again. It seems obvious, but the right practice of, church, of the church ordinances is to keep the church membership limited to people who are actually believers. I know that seems intuitively obvious to us, but that's what the church ordinances were designed to do. For the past three weeks, we've been looking at the question, what is the church? This morning we want to look at who is the church? What it takes to follow the commands of Christ so that the who's are really the church. And in this segment of our study of, the, of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, uh, we are looking at the core, uh, core doctrinal truth that is called saved church membership. Now as Baptists, we have an acrostic that we use our, our, our name Baptist to, to define the core truths of, 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 the, uh, of Christianity and what sets us apart as a group of believers, an assembly of believers, uh, biblical authority, autonomy of the local church, uh, 
priesthood of the believers, two church ordinances, individual soul liberty, separation of church and state, two church offices, and saved church membership. This is what we believe the Bible teaches and I want to show you from the scriptures. So we want to, do, we want to lay out the, the, the form of it today in, in uh, four sections. Track the biblical truth of this, examine how it was lost and, um, and still is, to, by the way, to the majority of the church in the world, how our biblical ancestors protected the legitimacy of the church and then a challenge for us to make sure, certain that here at Calvary Baptist Church our practice is biblical. So once again today, I, I, we're going to take just a shallow dive, skim across the surface of the high points of this topic because we're going to come back later in the series uh, and take a deeper dive on the individual practices that we'll be talking about today. But, but we need to, we need to uh, introduce the concepts and, and give you background and biblical background and historic background so that when we take the deeper dive, you'll understand where we're coming from. So if you have your Bibles with you and, uh, or, or whatever device you're using to find God's Word, I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning. There's a text of Scripture I want to look at with you that sort of launches us in our, in our journey this morning. And um, it's Acts chapter 2. Saved church members, the believer's church. There's a lot of questions, of course, people have. Should I, you know, should I be a member of my local church? And, or why should I be a member of my local church? How important is it? Is it important if, I, if I'm part of the invisible church, the universal church? Is it, is it something that I, isn't that automatic that I'm part of the church? Or, or to be honest, some people are saying, you know what, nobody's ever really talked to me about these things. I, I have no idea. I, I've heard of church membership. I don't really understand it. I don't know what it all means. I'm not really sure. And, um, and so we want to look at, at the biblical practice of the primitive church. We'll call it the primitive church because it was the original. And uh, look at the design of the original and then, and then see what, what comes of that. So Acts chapter 2, I want to look at verse 1. This is the forming of the church. This is when the church was first founded. When the day of Pentecost came, uh, they were all together in one place. Suddenly... A sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They had come for Passover, remember, um, when Christ was crucified, they had, they had gathered for Passover in Jerusalem, Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Remember, Jesus had said, take this message to the whole world. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in, a, in his own language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. 
This is, of course, the reversal of the curse at the Tower of Babel. Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And I will show them wonders in heaven, in the heavens above, in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And we long for that to come. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then Peter preaches to them uh, an apologetic on Jesus as the promised one, Jesus as the one who has died for our sins. And then he says this in verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and uh, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Now look at this verse closely, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So, in this matter of the primitive church and the formation of the church and how the church is formed and who is the church, this, this verse 41 is very, very instructional for us. The journey, our journey to discover the primitive church practice begins right here. Those who accepted his message, Peter's message, believed in the Lord, were baptized immersed, dipped, and were added to their number that day. This is the biblical pattern of the Holy Church and answers the question, who is the church? Those who receive the message are baptized and are added to the fellowship, added to the number. Who is the church? They identify with the local church. These are the ones who first had the apostles as their teachers and then Paul appointed leaders in local churches. So what we want to look at today is how to rediscover our primitive roots and make certain that we are practicing our primitive roots. The saved in the scripture were always baptized and were always added to the local assembly of believers. 
There was no such thing, at least there was nothing ever recorded or mentioned in, or existing in the New Testament of unbaptized saved people, except for the one individual who was pinned to the cross. And we know why he wasn't baptized. But there's no other mention in the New Testament of unbaptized saved people, nor is there mention of baptized people not being added to the local church or joined to the fellowship or recognized in the fellowship. Those two categories are never mentioned in the scriptures as existing, but have seemed to be accumulated in the modern church. So let's ask a question then as we do a quick historical retrospective, uh, where the church went wrong over the years. And um, if you remember last week, I mentioned to you about the church exploding on the scene by the uh, by the, uh, into the third, fourth century on the basis of the conversion of the then emperor, Constantine. However, I, I want to point out to you today that while that was momentarily beneficial to the church, the conversion or so-called conversion, if it really was a conversion of Constantine in 312, uh, was probably the cause ultimately of the church going into disarray and darkness for uh, millennia. You see, by 313, a year after Constantine's conversion, there was the Edict of Milan, uh, Milan, Milan given, uh, which legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. And at the time of that edict, about 10% of the empire had converted to Christianity, but by, within 100 years, 90% of the Roman Empire was claiming Christianity. 90%. But in that process of time, in, in, in that 100, 100 years, there was all kinds of just forced conversions into Christianity. There was, Christianity had become a superstition. In fact, whole armies of Romans would be baptized uh, and, and, and allegedly claiming conversion to Christianity just so that God would give them victory over, the, over, their, uh, over their enemies. And so um, all kinds of quick baptisms and incorrect baptisms were taking place and uh, moving the church further and further away from purity. There were four major causes or realities that, that caused the church to drift away from being a holy church filled with people who are actually believers and converts to Christianity to a significant mixture. Uh, first was infant baptism. Uh, by, within the first, so after the second hundred years of Christianity, infant baptism became uh, a common practice um, as Parents simply wanted to somehow make a decision for their children and ensure that their children would become Christian. So there was infant baptism. There was tradition over scripture. That tradition of infant baptism continued to be passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Bible uh, was kept from the people in that it was uh, Latin and most uh, people did not understand the language. They did not have a copy of the Bible themselves and they were at the mercy of corrupt, laic or corrupt uh, clergy. And then, of course, mass conversions under political orders of dominant magistrates. The unifying of Europe came under the banner of Christianity called at the time Corpus Christi Christianum. In, in, and uh, uh, 
there was, uh, at the time, uh, the quest for unity politically um, resulted at the expense of the holiness of the church. And even the reformers of the mid-1500s, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and others, uh, continued with a tradition of the church and state-sponsorship um, uh, endorsement of the church. That's why I'm not, I, I love the magisterial reformers in their soteriology and, and, and recovering justification by faith, but, but I don't take much direction with respect to their relationship with the state because uh, they were uh, very much pro-state, uh, uh, state-sponsored churches, and uh, including um, in, in the medieval church, of course, it had become politically expensive, biblical, uh, a term we used last week, corpus per mixtum, where there was mixtures of lost people and people who really knew the Lord, and there was no full understanding of which were which in the church. So when Christianity was declared the religion of the state, holiness has been historically the casualty. And that explains the trend for uh, uh, several thousand years of what we have seen historically. But there was a recovery movement that took place, a, a second reformation, if you will, from the Puritans and the Separatists who broke away from the corrupt Church of England in about 1611, which is the actual roots of our own denominational ancestors and many others, of course, in evangelicalism and, and liberal churches alike, Protestantism. And, and, and the recovery of the biblical church to be a holy church, uh, at the time, uh, the statement was made uh, in terms of uh, our Baptist roots, they sought a church composed of visible saints, that is, true believers, observing the gospel ordinances and obeying the commands of Christ. While none of us can see the invisible work that God does in our lives, the reformers, the second reformers, the Puritans and the separatists who broke away from the tradition, traditions of state-sponsored Christianity, who broke away from that, they determined that biblically, God had given us certain ordinances that were to be meticulously carried forth because the, they were visible actions that symbolized an invisible reality that Christ had really taken hold in a person's life. And that second separatist Puritan Reformation uh, was used by God and has been used by God to reform his church and, and, uh, and uh, accentuate the, the intention of God to have a holy church. So the invisible work of God is expected to be, be made visible by the characteristics and practices of the individual believer. And that has been the insistence of our historic ancestors in the movement that we belong to. And I just want to explain to you now, give a rundown now of why and how uh, these practices of our ordinances 
have, have been used by our church ancestors biblically to ensure as much as is humanly possible that the church is seeking to honor Christ in its practice as a holy church. And these will seem obvious to you, I would think, but uh, I'm taking nothing for granted. So the first is this, only believers are part of the body of Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you something there. Ephesians chapter 1, I want to look at verse 13. Only believers are part of the body of Christ and, me and, and members of the local church. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The distinction between those who do not know Christ and those who know Christ is the seal of the Holy Spirit. Only believers... Sealed by this, only believers are sealed by the Spirit and is the evidence that you are truly part of the body of Christ and members of the, of the church. The Bible, of course, defines the included in a moment. I'll, I'll look at that. But, but Paul, when he, he was addressing the church in 1 Corinthians 1-2, he addressed the church as those sanctified, made holy, in Christ. Set apart, made holy in Christ. That is the identification of who is the church. The church are the sanctified. The church are those who have been given the Holy Spirit, set apart by God on the basis of by faith believing in Christ. Secondly, and here's how the Bible defines those who are included in the practice of those who are defined as included. Baptism is the public sign of of salvation commitment. If your Bibles are still open to uh, Acts chapter 2, you'll see in verse 38, the first thing that Peter says to those who are believing, turn from the way, turn from the way you've lived, repent, turn from going your own way, living for yourself, turn to the living Christ, repent, and then be baptized. Baptism is the public sign of salvation commitment. It's been given to us as that sign that visible sign of the invisible work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Acts 2.38, in you are, we are baptized in the name, into the name. In Romans 6, verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that Jesus, or just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of of the Father, we too may live a new life. The practice of baptism by immersion is to picture precision, the precision of the gospel, the truth that Jesus died for us, was buried, and rose again. We likewise, in identifying with Christ, according to the command of Christ, be baptized, we, by precision of the ordinance, publicly give testament to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's the, that's the uh, 
the public sign of our salvation commitment. When you tamper with the true picture that symbolizes the truth of the gospel, the gospel itself gets blurred. And the historic drift of the church is when the church decides, uh, I think we ought to, I think we ought to change the way we do things on the basis of their emotions or their dreams or their desires or convenience or whatever it is. The precision of the gospel is at risk when we take precision out of the ordinances. It's almost as if Jesus would say, listen guys, I gave you two things to do. And the rest of, of what you do in, in, the, in the gathering is, is pretty free. You come and worship, you sing, you pray, you, 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 proclaim the word of, of the, uh, you proclaim the word of God. I don't tell you what text to preach on any given Sunday or whatever. It, it's very free. But there are two things, baptism and the Lord's table. I've given you precision in these two ceremonies. Don't mess it up. Or the church itself will be messed up. And, and this is what we historically have. A messed up church. Now, believer is the issue, of course. True believers, baptized, testifying to their faith, coming and identifying with the local fellowship. Believer is the issue, save church membership. Believer is the issue, but membership is the gatekeeper. To prevent the surrender of a holy church. Those truly included in Christ by faith. Consciously, publicly testifying to that truth in baptism. Are added to the church. That's why only people baptized as believers. May be members of the local church. This is not something that was, it was, it was invented by a, a, a wild idea of some church leaders. This is following the precision of those who received the message, were baptized, and were added to their number. It's that formula. In Acts 2.41, it says those who accepted. In Acts 2.47, it says those who were being saved. In Acts 4.4, it talks about who heard and believed. In Acts 5.14, it talks about those who believed. The stress is on believe, and believers are baptized, and, believe, and ba believers who've been baptized are added to the church. Infants can't believe. Therefore, they can't be included in the New Testament picture of the saved. If baptism, therefore, Hammett writes in his book, is limited to believers only, and if the church membership is limited to those who, who are baptized, the church will have only believers in its membership. That's the biblical formula that we seek to follow. To have a church made up of Christians, the starting point is to only allow baptized believers to become part of your church. And so, when, so that's the ordinance of baptism. What about the Lord's table and, and the early reformers? And what did they do and what did they practice? The Lord's table, according to the early reformers, is intended to picture both total loyalty to Christ and his local expression of his body. Where do I get that from? Where did they get that from? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're, we're going to take a deeper dive in this in a few weeks, but, but I do want to show you 
so you're, you're not just having to take my word for it. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper was, uh, uh, was being actually critiqued by the Apostle Paul because there was a drift going on. There was a drift in terms of, of um, the practice and who was practicing it and how they were treating one another. And it really zeroes in and helps us to understand the point of the Lord's table. Verses 27 to 29, Paul writes this as a caution to the Corinthian church. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Will be an unworthy manner would be taking the Lord's table if you don't believe in Christ, if you're not truly a believer. That's why it says in verse 28, a man ought to examine or a woman herself or himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone, verse 29, who eats and drinks without recognizing the body, and you should put in your Bibles, if you have an NIV, in brackets of the Lord, because it's not found in the original, and it's not found in the original for a reason, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. If, but if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. So here's talking about a holy communion. Talking about the purity of the church at communion, at the Lord's table. In the same way that baptism is to be participated by those. Likewise, the Lord's table is for believers. And there are two distinct offenses that are identified here. There's the offense against the Lord himself by taking of communion and not being a believer in verse 27. And there's the, the offense against the body of Christ, the church, in verse 29, by how they were mistreating one another. That's why it really says here, without recognizing the body. The, in other words, the church body, not, not the, the body of the Lord, but specifically the church. That's why the of the Lord is not found in the original text. It was added there by the NIV translators. The point is to different offenses. One the Lord and one is church. That's why when we come together for communion, Lord's table, it's intended to picture both loyalty to Christ and loyalty to the body of Christ itself, this local expression. And of course to the early reformers, membership, being meticulous about membership, ensured that would take place. That's why confessional Baptists, we are to the present day, hold out for the purity of the ordinance of the Lord's table by insisting that only membership assures the pure convictions of the participants in communion. Being a church ordinance, this is in the Baptist Faith and Message, which is revised in 2000, which is the guiding document for uh, U.S. conservative Baptists. Being a church ordinance, it, meaning baptism, is pre prerequisite, prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is for members of the church. In er Erickson, in his Christian theology, further, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the church. It cannot be appropriately practiced by separate individuals in isolation. It must be done in the church. And then finally, Stanley Grenz, in his theology, theology for the uh, community of God, 
says this, the Lord's Supper is not only a symbol of present community with Christ, but also with one another within Christ's fellowship. So um, I, I don't want to d- dig too deeply into here. I want to point out to you the, the uh, essence of the Lord's table, how it is critical that we be in in, loyal, uh, in, in loyalty to Christ and in loyalty to one another in the fellowship of, of believers. And, and uh, I acknowledge that there's uh, been practice all over the place with uh, closed communion, open communion, saved communion. We'll, we'll talk more about that in the future as to why some, why the other, and the complexities to all of that. But let's, let's hear what the Word of God says. Let's hear what the, the point of these ordinances are. Let's understand how easily a church can drift from a holy church to an impure church by ignoring the precision in the Scriptures. The correct optics in the Lord's table symbolizes a confessional and convictional loyalty to Christ and his body. Uh, Fifth, the governing of the church must be limited to believers. Membership is the biblical way to ensure that. Christ's church turned governance of God's people on its head. The Old Testament scriptures were filled with uh, detailed practice and measurements and, and, and uh, you had priestly system, a Levitical system. You had, uh, they were headmasters of the law. There was, there was ceremony and ritual and, and all kinds of, uh, of details and practice. The New Testament, Christ simplified our worship of him to come from our hearts, to gather together and express our worship to him, to practice the ordinances with precision, but he also changed the priesthood so that it would be priesthood of all of the believers. Every one of us, when we come to know Christ, has been filled with the Spirit of God. As a result, in Christ's church, is a, there's a level playing field of, of uh, decision-making and, and uh, seeking together the will of God. In fact, uh, again, in the Orthodox Creed of 1697, this statement is made. We believe that the great king and lawgiver Christ, the universal and only head of his church, hath given to his visible church a subordinate power or authority for the well-being, ordering, and governing of it, the executive part of which derivative power of discipline and government is committed to his ministers. So the executive part is to the officers of the church, and, but the church itself has together been given uh, the power of the Holy Spirit as priests, all of us, of the church. The uh, primitives, uh, reformers, called it church power for the whole body gathered. The whole body is able to hear God's voice and discern God's will and make and affirm decisions together. And that is the distinctive of uh, biblical holy church. Finally, in this section, the biblical mechanism for preserving the purity, in other words, regenerate church membership 
of the local church is redemptive church discipline. In a couple of weeks, we're going to dig into this. And uh, again, I don't want to go in, but Jesus has given to the church the gifts, the gift of the keys of the kingdom to allow in and to shut out those of the church who are not practicing uh, holiness of the church, uh, of holiness to Christ. Um, that's what Paul talks to the first Corinthian church and or, Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5.11 and says anyone who calls himself a brother, he may not be a brother or calls herself a brother, she may not be a sister or she, she calls herself a sister, may not be a sister. And, and Jesus has given to the church this powerful reality, the keys of the kingdom uh, together to make certain that his church and the holiness of his church is preserved by church discipline. This is how, uh, how critical it is to Jesus that his servants, his body, polices itself. Although the work of salvation is invisible, Garrett writes in Baptist Church Discipline, the proof of salvation is not. Practice must not be allowed to contradict profession. By your fruit, you shall know him, know them. So that's a rundown of the reformed practices of the second reformation by the Puritans and Separatists of whom are our spiritual ancestors that have given us for these past 400 years in terms of correctives of a very unholy church through the ages. So let's wrap this up. So what, why, how, how is Calvary Baptist Church in our practices? I'm just going to go down this list with you very quickly, making brief commentary. How much are we practicing uh, gatekeeper of the Holy Church of Jesus Christ? Well, we, we have a high importance and emphasis on receiving the gospel. As Jesus told uh, Nicodemus in John 3, 3, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. We hold to a high importance and emphasis in receiving the gospel and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. Secondly, we have a high importance on believer baptism. It's a command of the Lord Jesus. Go make disciples and baptize them. It is a command of Jesus to the saved. It's not optional. It's a command. To refuse is to either not really be saved or to be disobedient. We also put a high importance on formal membership, a visible membership, a membership that we know and we, we uh, watch over, a people who are fellowshipped together, however you want to call it, membership, members of a body, fellows of a fellowship, uh, parts of a body. Parts can't be out on their own because parts make up a body. You can't have body parts. You can't have a hand or an arm disconnected out on a, by itself. It has to be part of the body. We put a high imp importance on formal church membership. As the psalmist wrote, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Uh, we identify ourselves. Uh, the category of adherence is a human construct. It's not a biblical one. And so we have also members only participating in the governance of the church to make sure that the governance of the church is governed by those who are truly actually saved, who truly actually know Jesus Christ. There are practical safeguards that we um, practice here at Calvary. 
We have a course called Foundations of the Faith to understand the core Christian beliefs. Those of you who might be new believers or new to our doctrine, our understanding, new to our biblical doctrine, understanding of the scriptures, it's a 14-week uh, course that I teach in the fall and in the spring, and uh, you're more than welcome to be part of that. We also have testimonies from the tank. In other words, people who are generally, as a rule here, when you are baptized, we ask you to give public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ, public testimony to your faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we prevent infant baptism. People sometimes ask us, yeah, but you baptize children. You baptize sometimes very young children. Yes, but we never baptize children who cannot give a public testimony of their salvation in, in Jesus Christ. That's why the public testimony is considered very vital here. Now, sometimes we have open invites. We don't hold this to a legalistic issue because it's not, it's not something that's commanded of the Scriptures. But it is necessary for us to be convinced that one another in, in being saved and baptized and then uh, going to be joining the church actually know the Lord as their Savior. We have a How to Belong uh, program, learning what it means to have uh, loyalty to the local body of believers. We help you become a member. Um, our next uh, one that you can sign up for is February 17th. Um, so that you can find out what's the big deal about membership and all of that. But it, is the, it was the practice of the early church. Those who believed, were baptized, were added to the fellowship. And then we have a soul-searching Lord's table. We encourage you, we implore you to be right with Christ and always to be right with one another. That's the practice of the Lord's table. So that means not being disobedient to Christ. That means being baptized as a believer. That means walking in uh, holiness before the Lord. That means making sure that your accounts with the, the body of Christ are short accounts, that, that you are in good fellowship with your, with your brothers and sisters, that you're not disconnected or segregated from the body of Christ. The warning, texts are, the warning is there in the text. And then a willingness to discipline those out of fellowship who are persistent, or, or pers whose persistent, unregenerate behavior uh, is uh, bringing disgrace to the church, to the, to the Lord himself. It's, um, it's a heartbreaking uh, re requirement of the church, but nevertheless it is necessary at times to expel, expel someone or excommunicate someone who is not living a holy life. So, let me close with this question. Are you saved? The offer is open. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord may be saved. And if you're saved, have you been baptized? Have you obeyed the Lord's command to publicly identify what the Holy Spirit has done in your life as a believer? To identify with Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then, if you've been saved and you've been baptized as a believer... Have you followed the New Testament pattern and made a formal uh, covenant with a local people of believers through membership, through fellowship, through, through joining the local church? Who is the church? According to the New Testament practice, it's saved, baptized members of the local church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your truth to us. Thank you for the biblical pattern. You haven't given us a lot of complications in terms of our practice of the church. You've given us two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's table, and they themselves define and symbolize the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you will help us 
to give diligence to the truth that we find in the scriptures. I pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.